Hello and welcome to this one-off show about the meaning of luxury today. This podcast was produced by Monocle24 in association with Conrad Hotels and Resorts. I'm your host, Matt Alagaya, Monocle's business editor. Now the word luxury gets used an awful lot these days, but its meaning appears to be shifting. No longer is it simply about a price tag and a recognisable label. Instead, it's becoming more thoughtful. But what is the meaning of luxury in the modern world? Is the luxury consumer today changing, and how quickly? And what do luxury brands need to do to remain relevant in the future? These are just a few of the questions we posed and discussed at a recent event at the Conrad London St. James. I was joined on stage by Dominique Piquemal, Vice President in Charge of Luxury Operations and F&B Strategy at Hilton Worldwide, who explained how Conrad Hotels and Resorts understands the essence of luxury and how it's meeting its customers' demands. Also present were Aileen Siller-Wallbaum, Global Managing Director of Luxury at Christie's Auction House, Lisa Granger, Deputy Editor and Travel Editor of The Times Lux, and Nicolas Streff, Head of Marketing for the UK Market at Champagne House Dom Perignon. I started by asking Aileen from Christie's what falls into the luxury category at Christie's and how she sees that definition changing. Technically, luxury at Christie's, the remit I have, is um, jewellery, watches, handbags and accessories, and wine. So that is our internal definition. One could argue that actually everything that Christie's sells basically is luxury, because from our perspective, is anything that is unique, that gives you the sense of uniqueness, very specific, very special. Most of artworks, obviously, are totally unique. You have a few multiples, like prints or photographs, these are very, very rare, special, and unique to, to the individual who buy them. And I think the other aspect where you could, I, I suppose, say that everything that Christie sells um, is luxury is the fact that this is something that is collectible, that is something you can hold on to it, and as Patek Philippe would say, you will pass it on to the next generation. Is it likely to change, do you think? I mean, do you see the things that fall under luxury? Is that going to change, or is that always going to be constant? I think it can definitely change. It can uh, encompass cars for sure. Some people would argue horses, um, some you know very specific race horses as well. Um, I think more and more it in- includes experience. So that will be a nice segue into uh, obviously Dominique as well, um, because to give an example, in our only watch auction that we're um, going to support, which is a charity auction, we for example offer a meet and greet with Usenbolt together with the Hublot watch. So, you know, the, I think that those experiences more and more are part of, of luxury, because as we know, this is not only objects, but also time and experience that you share. And Nicola, you run the marketing for uh, Dom Perignon, so you have to almost be inside the head of the modern luxury consumer. How do you think that person has changed in the past few years? And um, do you see any changes that we should be aware of going forward for the next five, ten years? I would say there is another dimension to luxury, which is there's obviously the social dimension. And, you know, to show it belongs to a group, when you buy a bottle of Dom Perignon, it says something about you, about your group of friends, and you, you send a message around you. But more than that, it's basically the emotional connection you have with the brand, with the product, and that's what we try to transmit, that's what we're trying to share, basically, because it's about creating memories, and you just mentioned experience, and, and that's exactly what we're doing almost on a daily basis with Dom Perignon and with any other champagne, basically. That's to, to create the emotions and, and to create memories, basically. 
because if you're inspired, if you if you have a great time and, and you and you're you have emotions, you remember this moment, and that moment is about what you shared. So yes, a bottle of champagne, but also you remember the people you were with, and that's maybe one of the definitions of what is true luxury. And how does that impact on how you market the product? I mean, what is it? How can we see it in your in your product? Marketing a product like Dom Perignon and and within a, a business like like Moetenesi is. Uh, it's very different from any other, I would say, business model, like a retail business model. So I come from Cartier, and that was, in a way, very straightforward. You know, you, you have your stores, you have your network, and, and you know how to connect with your, with your clients, and you know who they are, and you know what they want. When you are Dom Perignon, and, and you're trying to, to basically share these moments, this experience, well, you rely on your on great ambassadors from the hospitality industry, from restaurants, so the chef, the sommelier, uh, and that's probably the challenge is first to connect with these who will talk on your behalf and, and will basically uh, uh, sharing this moment because you're not there every time we open a bottle of Dom Perignon. But also that's what will make the experience memorable. So how we market it, it's first and foremost partnering with um, these amazing venues, hotels, places around the world. Dominic, I'd like you to bring you in here. Um, as the man in charge of F&B for the EMEA region, how do you think about the way that you need to... I guess, create experiences and create places in your F&B environments for the modern luxury consumer? Lucky I have a great team of people that are a lot smarter <laughs> than me. So, But I think um, when we look at hotels in general, and then we look specific hotels, we look into the areas that are being put. And then we look at the, what can we add to those areas? What locally can we get that experience locally? So when you come to a hotel like this, you have a great bar to go to, a great pub to go to. If you go to Ireland, you go to Lemieux's, to Brasserie, has a good Irish feel to it. And there's different, there's different venues that really bring the local part, and that's the experience we really want to get to. And does that involve bringing in local partners as well when it comes to designers, architects, chefs? I mean, do you have to, in, in a similar way, do you have to kind of rely on those partners in, in local places? Of course. I think nowadays, I mean, you have the great chefs. We've just done a deal with Jean-Georges in Beverly Hills and just gives you an idea that he attracts a certain amount of people, but we have to operate it. So when we operate it, we have to say, okay, in Beverly Hills, how would Jean-Georges feel? Because he's definitely from New York. And how do you get that that vibe of California cuisine, and so far it's been really successful. So we, we constantly build relationships with different partners, different restaurant groups to put into different hotels. I think that's also part of our DNA as, as we go forward. And Lisa, I'd like to bring you in here as well. I mean, your, your reader, your audience is obviously a luxury traveler, someone who's very interested in traveling around the world, but also has a fair bit of money in their pocket. How is that traveler different to, say, the traveler of yeah, 10 years ago? Have you seen, is there, is there a different way that they are looking at the world and looking at travel that you think, yeah, is, is, is unique now? I think that there are so many levels of traveler. There are so many different kinds of traveler, and you've got to look at where the people are from. I think what someone wants in China and so what someone wants in the Middle East isn't necessarily what someone wants in London. And I think that's quite a challenge for hotels because they're trying to cater to the whole world and the whole one world wants different things but I think in the UK what we've seen is that British travellers we've been travelling a long time you know we, we've been exploring the world forever we've been 
uh, quite intrepid. And I think, therefore, the British traveller wants something a bit different from, from the normal. So we're seeing a lot of people who want great experiences. And I know that word, you know, experiences. People just don't want to go and sit in a beach, a beach hotel anymore. You know, why go across the world and sit in a beach hotel and have food that you could have in London? People want to do stuff, so they want to go into the desert. They want to sleep with, under the stars. They want to go out with a conservationist and learn about elephants. They want to sail a great Phoenici across the Indonesian Ocean. They, you know, they want to do ex- exciting things that they've never done before. You've got the word lux in your in your title. When it comes to the kind of vocabulary, do we overuse the word luxury? Do you think does it does it end up being in in too many places in a way? Um, I know that this is something that we we discussed just now. Is it there too often? It's there far too often. We were talking about it earlier, and I was just saying you can now get a luxury sandwich. You know, when you can get a luxury sandwich, the word luxury is overused. It is a sandwich. It's a very nice, thick sandwich, but it's not a luxury sandwich. We have a rule at the Times, well, specifically at Lux, where we're not allowed to use the word luxury because it just looks silly overusing it. What we try and do is try and describe something a bit more specifically and tell people a bit more about the quality, the history, what, what makes it so special. Nicholas, in, in, in your job, is that something you have to bear in mind as well? I mean, can you, when you're talking about champagne, which is probably one of the most luxurious products out there, do you have to be sensitive to that, to not overuse those words, and to, to come up with a different vocabulary to talk about these things? Well, basically, I, I completely agree. We never use the word luxury. Mm-hmm. You are luxury. You don't need to say you are luxury. And very often, if you have to use the word luxury, that means you have something to either to hide or you need to, to try to get some legitimacy to say, well, you know, it's nicely crafted, it's high quality, and hence that's very pricey because we call ourselves luxury. So in our world, we never really use the word luxury. It's, I think, uh, in the essence, in the DNA of, of the brand, of our maison, and we don't talk about brands, we talk about maison. That's another difference in the luxury world. But also, there is a difference very often between premium and luxury. And, and I think a lot of people are confused between what is premium and, and what is real luxury. Premium could be, you know, a slightly improved or better quality of something that's, you know, already exists and that is really good. It's just slightly better. Uh, luxury is not only about craftsmanship or about this. As I said, it's about the, the connection, the emotional connection. It's about being inspirational, aspirational. That's what premium brands can't get. And, and that's one of the ways you could distinguish, like, premium from luxury. Um, but that's, I think, essential to, to make this difference. Aileen, do you have a, a sort of a feeling about the word luxury? Does it, does it end up anywhere near Christie's? When you look at uh, any Christie's catalogue in my category, it's jewellery, it's watches, it's handbags and accessories, and it's wine and spirits, because this is what we're talking about, and this is where the excellence is. I think, you know, luxury is, is only a way we describe or we differentiate from post-war contemporary or impressionist and modern when we talk internally. But the reality is that it is about, you know, the... the craftsmanship and the, 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 the real artists, from my perspective, who, who produce those um, amazing uh, items that we, that we are lucky to sell. And it's interesting, I guess for you, there is a rarity there that is inbuilt in what you're selling, which a lot of the other people on the panel won't have. I mean, you putting on a sale, it is really the only item often of that, of that class of that, of that, in that sale. I guess that makes it easier to, yeah, to say that it's a, it's a luxury or a premium product. It, it's so very special, because as we said, I mean, 
every artist, when he produced something, and even when it has a very specific stance, such as a Rahul, for example, who has with the, the consume, consumer model a very special relationship, of course, with Campbell Soup and, and, and other of his artworks. But artworks are unique by definition. And even if you look at you know, the, the best of the best of, of jewelry, um, especially vintage jewelry or watches, a lot of them are really unique and also because of the provenance that most of them have. So they are very special. We're going to suffer, to give an example in, in Geneva, something that I'm very, very emotionate about, um, Le Grand Mazarin, which is one of the three top uh, crown jewels. I mean, you can't get more crown jewel of, of the French uh, crown than this. It has belonged to Cardinal Mazarin and passed on Louis XIV and you know, all the, uh, the subsequent of, um, of French rulers and then um, was bought by uh, François Boucheron, the founder of the Boucheron brand uh, in the 19th century, and then you know, like, uh, proceeded uh, to, to private hands and then comes to us. And for me, you know, like holding this diamond and feeling that I touched something that Louis XIV has touched, I think there is, you can't get more luxurious than that, I, I think. I'd like to stay with you, Aileen, because um, I'm interested in hearing uh, from the panel the place of digital in the world of luxury and, and in, the, in the worlds that we're talking about. Because you've, at Christie's, have, have pioneered the use of online sales and going into digital sales, which seems to go against the whole idea that um, you know, the auction room is this amazing place where there's a bit of a magic, there's a bit of a mystery to it. How do you replicate that, or can you even replicate that in an online sale? For us, the, the online sale has been a, a really incredible experience because as a lot of experience, it's all like nature, it's it happened organically. So we started in 2011 when we had the fabulous Elizabeth Taylor sale. But part of her jewelry was costume jewelry. So it was something that you could not possibly sell with the Peregrina, which was, was the most amazing, unique pearl owned by the Spanish crown, for example. So we said, what are we going to do with, um, with this costume jewelry that still belonged to Elizabeth Taylor? So we said, why don't we offer it online so that someone who is in you know, Indonesia or Guatemala has an opportunity to participate to the sales that otherwise is going to be you know, in New York. And we wanted, to a certain extent, just to have this kind of PR exercise or opening exercise. And to our surprise, the, the lowest estimate of that online sale was $1 million and the final result was 10. And so people, you know, like spent, uh, uh, you know, like an incredible amount of money just to own some things that belong to Elizabeth Taylor. And from the most, you know, like unexpected places in the world, we had one bidder from Guatemala City. And so we felt at that point, well, you know, after all, why not trying to you know, liaise with more people, connect with more people than New York, London, Hong Kong, Geneva, who are our usual places. And since then, we've, we've developed those online sales. And I think the, the, the main question we had doing this was not about the vetting of the quality of the object, because we dedicate the same amount and the same, the same specialist to the live sales and the online sales, but it was more, what about the experience that people would have liaising with Christie's, coming to the auction house, discussing the, the piece with, uh, with, uh, with a specialist, but actually through the, the contact that people are able to, to get you know, via email and all of the information we give them online. Well, some people are actually more comfortable to transact with us on that basis. And we feel also very interestingly that this is how we, we get most of our new buyers, 50% new buyers every online sale, which is absolutely amazing. And the beauty and the cherry on the cake is when they then they say, but I'm so interested that I will make the effort next time and come to the, to the live auction. So we think it's a, it, it's a very amazing 
moment for us to be able to to you know expand and open the brand to more to to a larger audience. And Dominique, I mean, Conrad obviously has a very sound digital strategy, and you you use tech in a, in an interesting way. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how what tech enables you to do in the hospitality sector? In Conrad, it's it's evolved. It started with the phone, an app, simple app, of uh, Conrad app. Now it's integrated into the Hilton app because it was so successful that you can actually, within the Hilton and within Conrad, you can choose your room, you can order room service, you can talk to one of the concierge, make reservations. So it started as the uh, Conrad concierge, and we found that most people love this technology. They're able to go in and ask questions, order, get things done for them, even though they didn't want human contact, which is different than you think in luxury hotels. Again, the satisfaction goes up. The contact comes at the, at the back end that we have to execute. And once we execute that in a timeless way, then that really makes the satisfaction for people. So we constantly try to improve those app and usage. And so we're constantly looking at ways of, I, I saw one version that we can travel like room service. You could see a travel like an like a driver, like an Uber driver. You could see your, your burger coming through the, the hallway and you can actually get to the door right before. So this is one of the things we're working on. You can actually track, which is frustrating when you order room service. Where's my food? Can I, do I have enough time to take a shower? Do I not? You know, so that's a, that's a good thing. And do you think we will reach a kind of equilibrium, though? I mean, I think I feel like a lot of the things you're saying, you know, the software is fantastic and people use it. But at the end of the day, they come back to your hotels for the hardware. They come back there for the great rooms, for the, the lively bars and restaurants, as you said, yeah. and also for the service. Well, it's, the, it's really the staff members they come back for. You know, recognition is probably the, the biggest way for any staff member, getting people to come back. They, every instance they meet a customer is our marketing opportunity, as we were saying before, is every time we have a transaction, an experience with a guest, that's what brings people back to hotels. It's, it's nice to have pretty hotels, I love them. But at the end of the day, you won't go to a pretty hotel if you have bad service. So it's all about the service and, and the connection, that emotional connection. And how much do you then think we, we're going to move towards tech? I mean, is there going to, where are we going to find a sort of comfortable equilibrium where there is tech existing alongside service, I guess? I think in, in luxury, I think there's always going to be some ways to be more efficient. And that's where technology comes in. It's always about the personality of the hotel that makes it locally driven by our general managers that really make the hotel amazing. And Lisa, for you, when you're traveling, is there, a, is there a comfortable kind of coexistence between tech and service or tech and the kind of the human touch, I guess? Yeah, I hate tech. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a people person, so I want to go to the concierge and say, look, I'm feeling like this. I don't know what to do. Do you have a recommendation? Although, having said that, I did have a look at your one, three, and five um, hour things and thought, oh, that's really useful for planning. So if you go to a city... And you think, oh, I'm going to have three hours. Actually, I think that is quite useful because the concierge might be busy, then he might have loads to do. So I think tech in that way might be quite useful. What I hate is going into a room and they go, oh, we don't need to tell you where anything is because it's all on the tablet. 
And I'm like, mm, actually, I'd quite like to just know where everything is because I don't want to spend my whole life on the tablet looking at stuff and poking buttons that don't work or I can't find it or I can't turn the telly on. Or well, In one instance, I went to a hotel, and I'm terrible to admit, but I'm a slight Archers fan. It was Sunday, and I suddenly thought, oh, I want, I want to find out. Has that guy been murdered? And I couldn't <laughs> turn on the bloody radio because it was on the telly. And Aileen, for you, is there, do you think, a, a kind of an equilibrium at some point where you will have, I guess, yeah, you'll have the sales online, some of them, but you're still going to keep the amazing auction rooms and you're still going to have that magic and mystery that you do have in those physical spaces that you can kind of, that they really are the brand at, at a certain point. Definitely. I think what the collector really enjoy, you know, having the relationship with Christie's is not just about the art. I mean, no, anyone could offer the art, really. Um, but the, well, not vet them and maybe and describe it in, in, in such a, a great way, but, but a lot of, you know, other auction houses or art business could, could do that. I think what makes the relationship very special, and when we do survey with our clients, as this is the reason exactly what they said. They, they said reason number one why we transact with you is the, the personal relationship we have with the specialist. So each and every one of them have a specialist that they trust, and so that they call for advice, not necessarily just on um, Christie's offered lots, but you know, like other um, offered lots. They they tell them, well, come with me to freeze, and so that we have a look, and you would give me your advice or your opinion on something I want to buy. And I think that this long-term relationship and this personal human connection is really important for clients. And the more new they are to the newer they are to the, to the art market and, and the most important it is to them that they are being guided and explained why is this you know Jackson Pollock more important or than another one or why is it so special in the in, in, in Pollock's career. And for you is there also a bit of data as well? I mean do you know when someone logged in, when someone logged off and at what point they got bored <laughs> and at what point they decide they almost got the, the painting they wanted but then they got outbid? Is all of that data in there and is it, is it all useful to you as well? Yes, obviously, we, we, with online sales, we have a lot of information, but with our website um, as well, we are able to anticipate almost what lot is going to be the most successful in the sale by the number of people who click on it and click in the, on the information. We have um, a wealth of data, of, of course, that we use also to help us curate ourselves to you know like the, the the market and the audience when we want to launch a new cell formula um, this is obviously something we something we use so a lot of um, artificial intelligence is is really going to help us to make those connections that sometimes you can't do for every single client individually so of course a client may decide that they want to become post-war contemporary collectors but at some point they might be interested in a photograph that relates to theme or to some things that is that is really special to them this is when they speak with the specialist the specialist can guide them this way but if they don't have that opportunity because they live far away or they just don't have the time then of course artificial intelligence can help them make that connection and this is something that has to be regarded as well Nicola, I'd like to change tack slightly and um, sticking with the, the idea of digital, but also looking to your, to your marketing. Obviously, you're in a digital space as well as, as your audience is. But you mentioned there that you have to have the chefs who work with you and the experiences as well. What's the balance that you have when you're dealing with you know, this high-end customer, this high-end consumer? What's the balance between being in the digital world, but also very much being in the, in the physical world? I think in the question, and the very first question, there are two buzzwords luxury and digital. Both are overused, I think. And everything is digital, everything is luxury. 
Aline, you said something very interesting with the first auction. You mentioned like the purpose or what we wanted to do was to connect with more people. And, and I think that's what scared loads of luxury brands at the time. That's this idea of being connected with millions and millions of people at the same time. Whereas luxury brands for decades, for centuries, it was all about for the happy few, for the elite. And some people knew, so it's really known by all but owned by a few. But also there was the idea of like, oh my God, the day we go into this digital world, well, how are we going to control our brand image, our, our, our brand equity? And, and you had this frustration or, or, or this anxiety from, from brands saying, we're going to lose this control. And, and it's interesting that Christie says, well, we want to connect with more because we want to give the chance to more to have access to something, which is for some of the brands was, well, we don't want that or we don't know how to use digital and how to use social media or, or web platforms or et cetera. And I think for, for maybe five, 10 years, luxury brands, they really took their time to understand how they could use these digital tools and how it could benefit them and the consumers. So basically I was like, how to bring it to life, my brands, my values, my stories, my history, my heritage through a tool and nothing else. So maybe Burberry was a great example, you know, they used it in their store in the brick and mortar, so you can connect and you can try some clothes on and see what's going on, etc. Uh, other brands like Chanel, Cartier, Hermès, it took them long time to, to get to it. But once they're there, they're doing it with a high level of you know, execution, always the idea of being excellent in what they're doing and offering the best experience. So the experience is not only brick and mortar and what's going on in the real world, but it's like when you're on your social media and, and you're following some, some accounts, well, it's the image you see and, and what you see and what you experience. And, and at the very beginning, maybe some brands jumped on this digital era and say, well, that's great, we're gonna do something. And they were like placing lots of product pack shot, beauty shot, and this is my product, you need to like it, this is what you need to know about me. But actually, people didn't wanna know that. They wanted to know the behind the label, the behind the scene. And that's when luxury brands thought like, okay, there is something great because I can't welcome millions of people in my cellar. I can't welcome millions of people in my workshop or in my auction or, or in a specific you know, location. But I can tell them and I can basically not tease them, but share a little bit of the dream. And, and that's when it's become, I think, right for luxury brands and where we're going to find the equilibrium you were talking about. Because presumably you couldn't exist as, as a luxury brand just in a digital space. You would yeah. have to still do the restaurants and you'd still have to have the relationships with the chefs. Yeah, still, because at the end of the day, you will discover, you will see on social media, on platforms like, oh my God, there was amazing dinner last night in incredible restaurants. Well, you know, maybe you don't have time to read that in a newspaper because, you know, it's very, you know, in a minute, it's like everything is happening every day and you don't have time to have, you know, coverage, etc. And journalists do probably bigger pieces, explaining a bit more the heritage, but for kind of something very snappy, well, you saw something on, on, on social media, like, okay, it looks great, I want to go there. And then you use your social media or your app or whatever to book, you know, your hotel room, your restaurants, etc. So you need it, but it's for us more like an extra or another touch within the, the marketing strategy, saying this is an extra layer uh, it can't be used as the only tool or the only platform to communicate, but it's just giving access maybe to people who will never, never drink Dom Perignon, will never buy a, a five-carat ring, or will never go to Madagascar. But at least you share this dream, and that's the idea of, of you know, um, being, I mean, this emotional connection and inspiring people. And that's how you keep your brand, your luxury brand, at the very top, and still, you know, inspiring and, and keeping the desire very high.
There's a lot of nodding going on here. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, there are two things that thank you, Nicholas. That it makes me, you know, reflect upon. I mean, the the first thing is, to be honest, also at Christie's, we've been educated by our clients how you to use digital. A big and important um, uh, element trend for us is the rise, the irresistible rise of Asian buying at Christie's, so from 15%, they now represent 30%. So over, over three, four years, they, they now represent 30% of over our clients. Over three, four base. years, it's changed that much. That much doubled. And obviously, in, in China, it's all about WeChat. So they do everything on WeChat. They want to see, the, so, uh, you know, like, first time they say, well, where is the WeChat version of the catalog? And so our people in New York were like, we quoi? <laughs> you know, they've never heard about that. But, but that's the way, you know, like, they are leapfrogging above you know, online PDF catalogs that you flip through like this. I mean, they are directly going onto a different platform, which is at the same time Instagram, Snapchat, you know, Pocket Money, um, you know, like Messenger, etc. All at the same time. So obviously, then you have to adjust because if you are trying to ask them, uh, can you please give me your email address and say we have no email address, that such thing does not exist in mainland China, then you just have to adjust. Otherwise, you're just missing on 1.6 billion people. So I think it's it's also something that is really important. Is also hearing and understanding from your own clients. I think the other aspect that is, um, according to me, very important is the fact that we will always be able to, as we say, uh, convey the message and the story. And as you said, it's, it's, it's very important to us to be able to, to participate, and this is where we connect with our values, our corporate values, if you will, that the more people know about arts anywhere, and we were talking with Lisa about African art, then there will, there will be a natural reaction from social media in general to protect it. So once people know about the Bamiyan Buddha in Afghanistan, then that becomes an outrage when they're when they getting destroyed. But otherwise, it just happens in silence and nobody knows about it. So the more, at, at a certain point, the more public it becomes that certain, you know, like areas are being threatened or that maybe, you know, climate change might threaten some, some grapes or vineyards in, in certain areas, etc. then the more people become conscious about things. And this is where our companies can also help I think, you know, um, get to a certain level of, you know, acknowledgement, recognition that something is, is happening. It's because people then get to the appreciation, even if they will never drink it, never experience Madagascar, but maybe the fact that Madagascar is preserved it will mean something to them. My very special thanks to all of our panellists, Dominique Piquemal, Vice President in Charge of Luxury Operations and F&B Strategy at Hilton Worldwide, Aileen Siller-Wolbaum, Global Managing Director of Luxury at Christie's Auction House, Lisa Granger, Deputy Editor and Travel Editor of The Times Lux, and last but not least, Nicolas Streff, Head of Marketing for the UK market at Champagne House Dom Perignon. And a very special thanks to Conrad Hotels and Resorts, with whom we collaborated to create this podcast. I'm Matt Alagaya. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>